Hello, and welcome to today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here is our first story. It's entitled, More Woes for Cone Park. Warm Temps Temporarily Shutter Snow Tubing Hill. It's written by Dolly A. Butts. Unseasonably warm weather has forced the city to idle the tubing hill at Cone Park for at least a week. It's the latest financial blow for the park, which has been fully open just 11 days this season due to weather-related issues. The park will shut down Thursday to allow staff to make more snow for the hill. As you can see, we still have a decent base of snow, but warm temps this week will have a huge impact, the city said in a post Monday on the park's Facebook page read. We love the warm weather, too, but fingers crossed for at least some overnight snowmaking. Temperatures are expected to climb into the mid-50s by Wednesday. Cone Park is slated to reopen on Friday, February 16th. The city is offering refunds and rescheduling options for those who purchase tickets for sessions during the week-long closure. The announcement comes two days after the city said the park's Blue Bunny Hill, a shorter hill designed for people of all ages, would temporarily close. During the winter season, the tubing hills are normally open from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on Friday, 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. on Saturday, and 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. on Sunday. The park is closed Monday through Thursday. The park's budget was already facing an uphill climb after a delayed start to its seventh winter season. Mild weather in late December delayed the opening of the hill until January the 5th. Last month, sub-zero temperatures and dangerous wind chills caused closures on January 13th and 14th. The final evening tubing sessions on January 19th and 20th also were canceled due to bitter cold weather. Since Cone Park's inaugural opening in December of 2017, the tubing hill has otherwise been operational for the season by December 31st at the latest. Last year, the park had record attendance, 29,059 visitors, as well as record revenue, $346,003. Christmas break generally represents a good portion of the park's seasonal revenue. From December, 20, December 1st, 2022 to January 2nd, 2023, the park brought in $72,850, which was roughly 21% of its total revenue for the 2022-2023 season. Since its opening in 2017, total revenue over that month-long period was between $29,000 and $93,000. Admission fees for the three-hour tubing sessions increased this season for the first time in Cone Park's history after the City Council approved a $3 increase per session. Operating expenses at the park have increased as infrastructure at the park, which opened in 2017. Tubers now pay $15 per session for all but one session on weekends from 6 to 9 p.m. On Sundays, the rate is reduced to $10. Reduced rates for low-income families continue to be offered. Cone Park was awarded the Outstanding Attraction Honor from the Iowa Tourism Bureau and the Travel Federation of Iowa in 2019. The other story on the front page of the journal today is entitled, Local Elections Could Become Partisan Under Bill. This is written by Caleb McCullough, and it comes from the journal Des Moines Bureau. Candidates for city and school board elections would appear on the ballot with party labels under a bill Iowa Republican lawmakers advanced out of a subcommittee on Tuesday. Supporters said the change would reflect the reality of the traditionally nonpartisan races, which have seen increased attention and money from local political parties and statewide partisan organizations in recent years. 
specifically in the last election, I think we saw a lot of party-affiliated people get involved in a space that we've not seen them get involved in, said Representative Brooke Bowden, a Republican from Indianola, who led the subcommittee meeting. And so when you begin down this pathway, we need to have a conversation. Is this the direction we're going? Bowden and Representative Dan Gelbach, a Republican from Urbandale, voted to advance the bill, House Study Bill 633, out of subcommittee. Democratic Representative Heather Matson, a Democrat from Ankeny, voted against it. The bill, which was proposed by House Education Committee Chair Skyler Wheeler of Hull, is now eligible for consideration in the full committee. Candidates for school and city elections currently run without any party label on the ballot. Still, local elections, especially for school boards, have become increasingly partisan in recent years as disagreements over school curriculum, LGBTQ issues, and COVID-19 measures have brought increased attention onto the local boards. Groups like One Iowa, Moms for Liberty, and the Family Leader got involved in school board races last year. Liberal candidates largely won over conservatives in that election's contested races. Under the bill, candidates for city and school board offices would be nominated via a primary election and all other methods of nominating candidates for those offices would be removed. The primary election would be held on the first Tuesday in October before the November election when city and school offices are up for election. Candidates would need to gather between 10 and 100 signatures from voters, depending on the office, to appear on the primary ballot. The cost of conducting the primary election would be paid by the city or school district. Opponents of the bill said it would inject partisanship into offices that don't often deal with political issues. They also said it would be an unnecessary cost for school districts and cities, which often have uncontested races for open seats. Steve Richardson, an Indianola City Council member, told lawmakers during the subcommittee meeting he did not understand what problem the bill was intended to address. I understand in some of the previous elections here recently that there's been some partisan activity from different groups and things like that, he said, but that's happened, frankly, for a long time, and it's nothing new to the process. Lobbyists representing city and school board groups said smaller districts often have difficulty recruiting candidates to run for office, requiring cities and school districts to conduct and pay for a separate primary election would add to those difficulties, they said. I would prefer that we not have to spend money on an election that could be spent on a teacher instead or a program that is really important for students, said Margaret Buckton, a lobbyist for the Urban Education Network and Rural School Advocates of Iowa. Matson, who voted against the bill, said the issues that local officials deal with are not partisan. At forums for school board candidates in her community, she said candidates talked about the specific issues facing students and teachers rather than partisan issues. Whether it's curriculum and standards or making sure that buildings have great security, those are the issues that are dealt with at the school board level, she said. I don't think it helps anybody, or any Iowan for that matter, to unnecessarily enforce partisanship. Some supporters of the bill said it would give voters more information about candidates in local races and allow them to make more informed decisions. They also said they believed it would increase turnout as voters would feel more confident making decisions on who to support. Research has shown that a lack of party affiliation on the ballot leads to lower turnout in local elections, and incumbents have a larger advantage in nonpartisan elections. 
Voters are also more likely to skip nonpartisan races on ballots that have a mixture of partisan and nonpartisan races. Andy Condlin, a lobbyist for the conservative think tank Opportunity Solutions Project, said it can often be hard to find out where school board candidates stand on issues without seeking out and speaking to them one-on-one. I don't have the time to sit down with every school board candidate that's going to be in charge of our district, he said. This is a marker. This is a signal to low-information voters. Hey, generally speaking, this is what they generally believe in. Next up is an article entitled, Bill Advances Defining Man and Woman. It's written by Tom Barton of the Gazette, and the dateline is Des Moines. Transgender and civil rights advocates and their allies packed a committee room and hallway for the second time in as many weeks to voice opposition to legislation they decried as unconstitutional and blatantly discriminatory. Activists stomped, shouted, and chanted profanities, and trans rights are human rights outside a committee room in vehement opposition to a proposal by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds that they say would erase transgender Iowans from the state code. House Study Bill 649 would define man and woman in state law and require transgender Iowans to note both their pre- and post-transition genders on their driver's license. Reynolds, in a statement last week, called the legislation common sense and said it protects women's spaces and rights. She compared it to a state law passed in 2022 that prohibits transgender girls and women from competing in girls' and women's athletics. Women and men are not identical, Reynolds' legislative liaison Molly Severn told lawmakers, echoing the governor, they possess unique biological differences. That's not controversial, it's common sense. It's unfortunate that defining a woman in code has become necessary to protect spaces for women's health, safety, and privacy that are being threatened like domestic violence shelters or rape crisis centers. Opponents, however, note just as with school bathrooms and locker rooms, many institutions have shown it's possible to provide facilities that accommodate cisgender, people whose gender identity corresponds with their sex at birth, and transgender people. They say the bill's use of pro-segregation language should raise alarm. Reynolds's bill echoes language associated with the 1896 U.S. Supreme Court decision in the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, which declared segregation on the basis of race to be legal. The governor's bill says the term equal does not mean same or identical, and that separate accommodations are not inherently unequal, and mentions prisons, domestic violence shelters, locker rooms, restrooms, and rape crisis centers as places where people may need to be separated based on their sex assigned at birth. Here we are repeating not learning from history said Connie Ryan, Executive Director of Interfaith Alliance of Iowa Action Fund. Separate but equal is never equal. A three-member House panel advanced the bill Tuesday on a party-line, two-to-one vote by Republican Representatives Heather Hora of Washington and Brooke Bowden of Indianola for consideration and a vote by the full House Education Committee later Tuesday afternoon. Representative Sharon Steckman, a Democrat from Mason City, opposed the legislation. I can't see any other purpose than discrimination, Steckman said, of putting sex change information on a driver's license. She also questioned whether domestic violence shelters in the state are experiencing problems accommodating cisgender and transgender women. 
I'm appalled that the governor would put forth such a discriminatory bill targeting 0.29% of our Iowa population, Steckman said. It is a sad day for Iowa. We're going backward. The bill comes a week after hundreds of transgender Iowans and LGBTQ civil and civil rights advocates and allies flocked to the Capitol to protest a bill that would have changed the way transgender Iowans are protected under the Iowa Civil Rights Act. Though that legislative proposal failed to advance, Reynolds introduced the new legislation she said recognizes biological differences between men and women. Opponents, including the ACLU of Iowa, said the bill would have wide-ranging implications, including requiring changes to the way Iowa collects public health data and offers anti-discrimination protections. Transgender Iowans said the legislation would require them to out themselves anywhere they have to present their ID. My community is terrified of the consequences this bill will have for our lives, Emma Denny, a transgender woman from Iowa City, told lawmakers. Trans people already face overwhelming employment and housing discrimination in Iowa under existing law, and the governor's bill would open ourselves up to more violence anytime we have to show an identification. Denny drew comparisons between the bill's requirement and the pink triangles that were sewn onto the shirts of gay men in concentration camps in Nazi Germany. This is untenable, and we in Iowa will not stand for it, Denny said. The bill defines a female as a person whose biological reproductive system is developed to produce ova, and a male as a person whose biological reproductive system is developed to fertilize the ova of a female. The term woman or girl refers to a female, and the term man or boy refers to a male. The section continues. The bill also would prevent transgender Iowans who have had sex reassignment surgery from simply changing their sex on their birth certificate or driver's license. HSB 649 would require a person's sex at birth to be listed along with any sex reassignment for people seeking to change their birth certificate. The bill also would create a record of any sex changes on the Iowa driver's license for people who apply to update the document after a reassignment surgery. Other Republican-led states, including Florida, have enacted similar policies, rescinding the ability to change gender markers on driver's license and aiming to legally define terms like man and woman based on biological sex at birth. LGBTQ and civil rights advocates said the bill is another broad attack on transgender islands. My transgender friends and I deserve to live in peace. My wife being forced to have a different kind of identification than me is completely unthinkable, Clara Rainin of Iowa City told lawmakers. She is a better woman than I will ever be. She is more of a woman than I will ever be. And to think that she would be treated differently than me because she is transgender is unconscionable. Additionally, requiring government-funded or run domestic violence shelters and rape center, rape crisis centers to treat transgender women inconsistent with their gender identity would conflict with federal law that prohibits discrimination based on gender identity and put federal funds at risk, according to LGBTQ advocacy group One Iowa and it would require transgender Iowans to disclose their private medical history on their driver's licenses for anyone to see, said Pete McRoberts, policy director for ACLU of Iowa. 
McRoberts called such a requirement unconscionable, and noted lawmakers have previously acted to prevent disclosing whether an individual received a COVID-19 vaccine. Patty Alexander, a retired teacher from Indianola, spoke in favor of the bill. It is unfortunate that we must legislate reality, Alexander said, but this is where we are today. This bill protects the public from irrational and radical behaviors that are harmful to society. It is obviously, it is obvious that biological sex is not a choice and cannot be changed. We can change our appearances, but we can't change our DNA. Please protect us from the immoral will of others. Courtney Collier, quoting scripture, said, People can choose to live in their delusions and confusions in their own lives at home, but the rest of us should not be forced to join them. Daniel Breitbarth, representing Republican Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd, said the bill provides important clarification of state law to protect people's privacy, health, and safety. Kent Zimmerman of Perry said the bill overlooks the complexities and dynamics of the LGBTQ community and perpetuates discrimination, intolerance, prejudice, and violence. It undermines the principles of equality and inclusivity that we should strive to uphold, not erase, Zimmerman said. We are better than this. My son deserves better than this, and our children demand better than this. Next is an article entitled, Trump Immunity Denied. Federal court says he's subject to prosecution. Challenge is expected. This is written by Eric Tucker and Alana Durkin-Richer of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Washington. A federal appeals panel ruled Tuesday that Donald Trump can face trial on charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election, sharply rejecting the former president's claims that he is immune from prosecution while setting the stage for additional challenges that could further delay the case. The ruling is significant not only for its stark repudiation of Trump's novel immunity claims, but also because it breathes life back into a landmark prosecution that was effectively frozen for weeks as the court considered the appeal. The one-month gap between when the court heard arguments and issued its ruling created uncertainty about the timing of a trial in a packed election year, with the judge overseeing the case last week canceling the initial March 4th date. Trump's team vowed to appeal, which could postpone the case by weeks or months, particularly if the Supreme Court agrees to take it up. The appeals panel, which included two appointees by President Joe Biden and one Republican-appointed judge, gave Trump a week to ask the Supreme Court to get involved. The eventual trial date carries enormous political ramifications, with special counsel Jack Smith's team hoping to prosecute Trump this year and the Republican frontrunner seeking to delay it until after the November election. If Trump were to defeat Biden... He could presumably try to use his position as head of the executive branch to order a new attorney general to dismiss the federal cases he faces or potentially could seek a pardon for himself. Tuesday's unanimous ruling is the second time since December that judges held that Trump can be prosecuted for actions undertaken while in the White House and in the run-up to January 6, 2021, when a mob of his supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol. The opinion was expected given the skepticism with the panel greeted by the Trump's team's arguments. For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant, the court wrote. But 
Any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. The judges said the public interest in criminal accountability outweighs the potential risks of chilling presidential action, turning aside the claim that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would prevent the recognition of election results or violate the rights of citizens to vote. Now we come to an article entitled, Qatar Gets Positive Response. Negotiators are trying to arrange a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel. This is written by Matthew Lee, Wafa Sharafa, and Sami Magdi of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Doha, Qatar. Hamas's response to the latest plan for a ceasefire in Gaza and the release of hostages was generally positive, key mediator Qatar said Tuesday, as the militant group reiterated its demand for an end to the war, something Israel so far ruled out. Qatari Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdurrahman Al Thani announced the response during a news conference with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who said he would brief Israeli leaders on it Wednesday when he meets with them. Blinken, who met with Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman the day before, said the Saudis still have a strong interest in normalizing relations with Israel, but require, require an end to the war and a clear, credible, time-bound path to the establishment of a Palestinian state. Qatar, which has long mediated with Hamas, is working with the U.S. and Egypt broker a ceasefire that would involve a halt in fighting for several weeks and the release of more than 100 hostages still held by Hamas after its October 7th cross-border raid that ignited the war. Hamas said in a statement that it responded in a positive spirit to the latest proposal, but the militant group said it still seeks a comprehensive and complete ceasefire to end the aggression against our people. Hamas is also expected to demand the release of a large number of Palestinian prisoners, including high-profile militants, in exchange for the hostages. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has ruled out both demands, saying Israel is committed to continuing its offensive until total victory over Hamas and to returning all the hostages. He has also dismissed U.S. calls for the creation of a Palestinian state. Meanwhile, Tuesday, two ships traveling in Middle East waters were attacked by suspected Yemen Houthi rebel drones, authorities said. The latest assaults in the Iranian-backed fighters' campaign of targeting vessels over Israel's war on Hamas. No injuries were reported in either incident. Since November, the rebels have repeatedly targeted ships in the Red Sea over Israel's offensive in Gaza against Hamas. In recent weeks, the United States and other allies launched airstrikes targeting Houthi missile arsenals and launch sites for its attacks. Jury says shooter's mother guilty of manslaughter. Teen is serving a life sentence for rampage that left four dead. This comes from the Associated Press and the dateline is Pontiac, Michigan. A Michigan jury convicted a school shooter's mother of involuntary manslaughter Tuesday in the killing of four students in 2021. Prosecutors say Jennifer Crumbly, age 45, had a duty under state law to prevent her son, who was 15 at the time, from harming others. She was accused of failing to secure a gun and ammunition at home and failing to support Ethan Crumbly's mental health. Sentencing, sentencing is slated for April the 9th. Jennifer and James Crumbly were the first parents in the U.S. to be charged in a mass school shooting committed by their child, 
James Crumbly faces trial in March. On the morning of November the 30th, 2021, school staff members were concerned about a violent drawing of a gun, bullet, and wounded man accompanied by desperate phrases on Ethan Crumbly's math assignment. His parents were called to the school, but they didn't take the boy home. A few hours later, Ethan Crumbly pulled out a handgun from his backpack and shot 10 students and a teacher. No one had checked the backpack. Ethan Crumbly, now age 17, pleaded guilty and is serving a life sentence. And Biden tells Republicans to show some spine. Border security and Ukraine aid deals look to be all but finished. This comes from the Associated Press and the Dateline is Washington. A Senate deal on border enforcement measures and Ukraine aid suffered collapse Tuesday as Republicans withdrew support despite President Joe Biden urging Congress to show some spine and stand up to Donald Trump. Just minutes after the Democratic president's remarks at the White House, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, emerged from a GOP luncheon at the Capitol and acknowledged the deal was dead. It showed McConnell's slipping control of the GOP conference, Trump's growing influence, and Biden's ability only to look on as a cornerstone of his foreign policy, halting Russian President Vladimir Putin's advance into Europe, crumbled in Congress. The bill also would have designed, designated tens of billions of dollars more for Israel, other U.S. allies in Asia, the U.S. immigration system, and humanitarian aid for civilians in Gaza and Ukraine. The President and Senate leaders are now stranded with no clear way to advance aid for Ukraine through Congress. House Republicans on Tuesday night failed to pass a separate $17.6 billion package of military aid for Israel, that contained no aid for Ukraine. Now in some short articles under the digest heading, House GOP fails to impeach DHS Secretary, Dateline Washington. In a dramatic setback, House Republicans failed Tuesday to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, forced to shelve a high-profile priority for now after a few GOP lawmakers refused to go along with the party's plan. The stunning roll call fell just a single vote short of impeaching Mayorkas, stalling the Republicans' drive to punish the Biden administration over its handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. With Democrats united against the charges, Republicans needed almost every vote from their slim majority to approve the articles of impeachment. Three Republicans opposed the impeachment, and a fourth Republican switched his vote so the measure could be revisited. The final tally was 214 to 216. Next steps are uncertain. Not since 1876 has a cabinet secretary faced impeachment charges. And report says bolts missing from Boeing plane panel. Bolts that helped secure a panel to a Boeing 737 MAX 9 were missing before the panel blew off the Air Alaska Airlines plane during a January 5th flight, according to accident investigators. The National Transportation Safety Board issued a preliminary report Tuesday. It included a photo from Boeing, which worked on the panel, called a door plug. In the photo, three of the four bolts that prevent the panel from moving upward are missing. The location of the fourth bolt is obscured. Investigators said lack of certain damage around the panel indicates all four bolts were missing before the plane took off from Portland, Oregon. Pilots were forced to make an emergency landing with a hole in the side of the plane. The NTSB did not declare a probable cause for the accident, 
That will come at the end of an investigation that could last a year or longer. And some shorter articles from the Briefly heading. In California, one of the wettest storms in Southern California history unleashed at least 475 mudslides in the Los Angeles area, and officials warned that the threat hadn't passed yet. Seven weather-related deaths were reported in the state as of Tuesday evening. Meta said Tuesday that users in the coming months will see labels on AI-generated images that appear on Facebook and Instagram, part of a broader tech industry initiative. The U.S. tax revenues are expected to rise by as much as $561 billion from 2024 to 2034, thanks to stepped-up enforcement made possible with funds from the Inflation Reduction Act, according to an analysis released Tuesday by the Treasury Department and the IRS. Authorities issued cease and desist orders Tuesday against two Texas companies believed connected to robocalls that used artificial intelligence to mimic President Joe Biden's voice and discourage people from voting in New Hampshire's primary last month. From Turkey, two people attacked Turkey's largest courthouse before being shot dead Tuesday in an exchange of fire that also left one other person dead and five wounded. Authorities alleged the assailants were part of an extremist organization. And from Chile, the death toll from wildfires that ravaged central Chile for several days increased to 131 on Tuesday, and more than 300 people were still missing as the blazes appeared to be burning themselves out. You're listening to the Sioux City Journal on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. There's no opinions and no obituaries today, so I'll read this article entitled Falling for a Fraud. As Valentine's Day nears, love is in the air, but so are cybercrime romance scams. It's written by Kimberly Palmer of Nerd Wallet. Valentine's Day might put you in the mood to look for love online. Unfortunately, criminals are also on the hunt, but for victims, not romance. Meeting people online has opened the door to romance fraud, says Kim Kasky-Palangio, program director of the Peer Support Program at the nonprofit Cybercrime Support Network in Ann Arbor, Michigan. You feel you can trust them, she says, adding that cyber criminals often cultivate relationships for months before asking for money. Reports to the Federal Trade Commission show consumers lost $1.3 billion in 2022 to romance scams. While they can happen to anybody, here are some strategies experts suggest to reduce risk. Beware of fast-moving online relationships. People are often eager to move relationships forward quickly, especially around official holidays, said Eva Velazquez, president and CEO of the Identity Theft Resource Center, a nonprofit organization that provides advice and assistance related to identity theft. She suggests going slowly instead. Scam artists, Velazquez explains, tend to shower their targets with affection, proclaiming their love early. Then, the victim feels compelled to send money when the scam artist says they need it. They make up some excuse like an accident, she explains. If their target doesn't send it to them, they move on to the next victim. Watch for red flags. 
Another sign of romance fraud is if the person you are interacting with asks you to communicate off of the dating app, such as by using WhatsApp or email, says Eileen Charlotte, whose story of being tricked by a romance scam was featured on the Netflix show The Tinder Swindler. Charlotte now works with BioCatch, a fraud prevention firm, as a scam advisor and banking customer advocate. They want you in a more personal environment to get to you, Charlotte says, where they can interact with you on their own terms without limits imposed by dating apps. Kasky Palangio says another sign that something is amiss is if the person you are communicating with declines to have video calls with you or meet in person. They might cite reasons such as living overseas or serving in the military. They may not be who they say they are, Kasky Palangio says. They might also be using scripts that they send to multiple people using terms like honey instead of your name in a sign you could be communicating with the scammer. Do your own research. If you start to wonder about the person you are communicating with online, it's time to go into investigative mode. Kasky Palangio suggests starting with a reverse image search of their profile photos. You can upload any photo to images.google.com to generate results. You might discover the images actually belong to someone else or are used across multiple sites with different names and identities. But having no online footprint is also a red flag, she adds. Melanie McGovern, national spokesperson for the Better Business Bureau, a nonprofit that promotes marketplace trust, suggests taking notes on your interactions so you can notice inconsistencies. If your love interest mentions a high school they attended, look it up and confirm whether facts, whatever other facts you can. Make sure you're asking all kinds of specific questions, McGovern says, especially if they share a sad story. Then go back and ask the same questions a week later. If they can't remember details, you should be skeptical, she says. Avoid exchanging money. One common scenario involves the scam artist encouraging you to send money for an investment or asking you to accept a large deposit which you then forward to another account. But then, the first check doesn't clear and your own money vanishes, warns Seth Rudin, BioCatch's director of global advisory. Don't take funds from people you've never met and don't offer to circulate funds for others, Rudin says. If you authorize a money transfer, you are probably responsible for it, he adds, which means you might never see your money again. Let go of shame and report the fraud. A lot of people feeling stupid for falling into any type of scam and that's the taboo I want to take off you are not stupid this is what a fraudster does this is their job Charlotte says to help victims feel less alone the cybercrime support network organizes weekly group meetings to process what they experienced and find emotional support usually they haven't told anyone yet because they're embarrassed Caschio Polangio says scam victims can also get support and help others by reporting to their bank's fraud department as well as the FTC, a state's attorney general's office, the FBI, a local police station, the Better Business Bureau's scam tracker, and the Identity Theft Resource Center, among others. Charlotte notes that scams can happen to any of us. The right scam just just has to find the right person at the right time. Another financial-related article, Ready, Set, File. Experts share tips to lower stress as April 15th approaches. This is written by Adriana Morgan 
of the Associated Press. Tax season is underway, and for many people, filing U.S. tax returns, especially those doing it for the first time, it can be a daunting task that's often put off to the last minute. But if you want to lessen the deadline stress, start getting organized as soon as possible. Whether you do your taxes yourself, go to a tax clinic, or hire a professional, navigating the tax system can be complicated and stressful. Courtney Alev, a consumer financial advocate for Credit Karma, recommends you go easy on yourself. Take a breath, take some time, set out an hour, or go through it over the weekend. You'll hopefully see that it's a lot simpler than you think, Alev said. If you find the process too confusing, there are plenty of free resources to help you get through it. Here are some things you need to know. When is the deadline to file taxes? Taxpayers have until April 15th to submit their returns from 2023. What do I need to file my tax return? While the required documents might depend on your individual case, here is a general list of what everyone needs. Social Security number, W-2 forms if you are employed, 1099-G if you are unemployed, 1099 forms if you are self-employed, savings and investment records, any eligible deductions such as educational expenses, medical bills, charitable donations, etc., tax credits such as child tax credit, retirement savings contributions credit, etc. To find a more detailed documented list, visit the IRS website. Tom Osabin, Director of Tax Content and Government Relations at the National Association of Tax Professionals, recommends gathering all of your documents in one place before you start working on your tax return. Also have your documents from last year if your financial situation has drastically changed. Osabin recommends taxpayers create an identity protection PIN number with the IRS to guard against identity theft. Once you create a number, the IRS will require it to file your tax return. How do I file my taxes? You can either file your taxes online or on paper. However, there is a major time difference between the two options. Paper filing can take up to six months for the IRS to process while electronic filing cuts it down to three weeks. What resources are out there? For those who make $79,000 or less per year, the IRS offers free guided tax preparation that does the math for you. If you have questions while working on your tax forms, the IRS also offers an interactive tax assistant tool that can provide answers based on your information. Beyond the popular companies such as TurboTax and H&R Block, taxpayers can also hire licensed professionals such as certified public accountants. The IRS offers a directory of tax preparers across the United States. The IRS also funds two types of programs that offer free tax help, v VITA, V-I-T-A, and the Tax Counseling for the Elderly Program, TCE. People who earn $64,000 or less a year have disabilities or are limited English speakers qualify for the VITA program. Those who are 60 or older qualify for the TCE program. The IRS has a site for locating organizations hosting VITA and TCE clinics. If you have a tax problem, there are clinics around the country that can help you. Generally, these tax clinics also offer services in other languages such as Spanish, Chinese, and Vietnamese. How can I avoid mistakes in my tax return? Many people fear getting in trouble with the IRS if they make a mistake. Here's how to avoid some of the most common ones. Double check your name on your Social Security card. When working with clients, Osabin always asks them to bring their Social Security card to double-check their number and their legal name, 
which can change when people get married. You may have changed your name, but you didn't change it with Social Security, Yosebin said. If the Social Security number doesn't match to the first four letters of the last name, the return will be rejected and that will delay processing. Search for tax statements when you have opted out of paper mail. Many people like to opt out of snail mail, but when you do, it can also include your tax documents. If you didn't get anything in the mail, that doesn't mean that there isn't an information document out there that you need to be aware of and report accordingly, Osabin said. Make sure you report all of your income. If you had more than one job in 2023, you need the W-2 forms of each. What about the credit, child income credit? Congress recently announced a bipartisan agreement to enhance the current child tax credit. Currently, the tax credit is $2,000 per child, but only $1,600 is refundable. The bill would incrementally increase the maximum refund, refundable child tax credit to $1,800 for 2023 tax returns, $1,900 for the following year, and $2,000 for 2025 tax returns. If this agreement goes through, about 16 million children in low-income families would benefit from this child tax credit expansion, according to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. What if I make a mistake? Mistakes happen, and the IRS takes different approaches depending on each case. In general, if you make a mistake or you're missing something in your tax records, the IRS will audit you, Alev said. An audit means that the IRS will ask you for more documentation. Generally, they're very understanding and willing to work with folks. You're not going to get arrested if you type in the wrong field, Olev said. What if you haven't filed for years? You can file taxes late, and if you were supposed to get a refund, you might still get it. If you haven't filed for years and you owe money to the IRS, you may be hit with penalties, but the agency can work with you to set up a payment plan. How can I avoid scams? Tax season is a prime time for tax scams, Osabin said. These scams can come via phone, text, email, and social media. The IRS uses none of those means to contact taxpayers. Sometimes scams are even operated by tax preparers, so it's important to ask lots of questions. If a tax preparer says you will get a refund that is larger than what you've received in previous years, for example, that may be a red flag, Osabin said. If you can't see what your tax preparer is working on, get a copy of the tax return and ask questions about each of the entries. How long should I keep copies of my tax returns? It's always good practice to keep a record of your tax returns just in case the IRS audits you for an item you reported years ago. Osabin recommends keeping copies of your tax return documents for seven years. How do I file a tax extension? If you run out of time to file your tax return, you can file for an extension. However, it is important to remember that the extension is only to file your taxes, not to pay them. If you owe taxes, you should pay an estimated amount before the deadline so you can avoid paying penalties and interest. If you expect to receive a refund, you will still receive your money when you file your taxes. Filing an extension will give you until October the 15th to file your taxes. You can file an extension through your tax software or preparer or, of preference, the IRS free file tool or via mail. What happens if you file taxes late? If you missed the tax deadline and you didn't file for an extension, there are several penalties that you might receive. If you missed the deadline, you might receive a failure to file penalty, which is 5% of the unpaid taxes for each month the tax return is late, according to the IRS. If you owe taxes and you didn't pay them prior to the tax deadline, you will receive a failure to pay penalty. 
interest will also be charged on both taxes and penalties owed. If you are due for a refund, you will not receive a penalty and you will receive your tax return payment. If you had special circumstances that meant you were unable to file or pay your taxes on time, you might be able to remove or reduce your penalty. If the amount of taxes you owe becomes too large, you can apply for a payment plan. Payment plans will allow you to pay the balance over time. Now we move over to the sports page, and the top story is entitled Chiefs Like Being Underdogs. It's written by Dave Scaretta, the Associated Press, and the dateline is Las Vegas. For most of the past six years, Patrick Mahomes has had to manufacture the chip that he carries on his shoulder because the Kansas City Chiefs have been so good for so long that they were almost always expected to win. That is no longer the case. During a season in which the Chiefs scuffled along on offense and at one point lost five of eight games, they went from being the favorite on a weekly basis to something entirely different, an underdog. They became the team that received the points when the betting lines came out rather than giving them up, and the chip on Mahomes' shoulder suddenly appeared on its own. It's kind of lit a fire under some guys, Mahomes admitted, including myself. Perish the thought of giving the two-time league and Super Bowl MVP another reason to feel he needs to prove himself. Yet, that is exactly what Mahomes has done in the playoffs, where he's played the best he has all season. He threw for 262 yards and a touchdown in a frigid wildcard win over Miami, doubled down with 215 yards passing and two scores in a divisional win in Buffalo, and had 241 yards passing and a TD in Baltimore, all without throwing an interception. In the past two of those games, the Chiefs were underdogs at kickoff, just as they likely will be when they play the 49ers in the Super Bowl on Sunday in the gambling mecca of Las Vegas. San Francisco has been a consistent one-and-a-half-point favorite, according to FanDuel Sportsbook, though that number could change by game time. Only five teams since the year 2000 have won the Super Bowl while being underdogs in each of the final three games. Listen, we understand the reasoning behind it. I mean, we get it, and understandably so, Chiefs coach Andy Reid said. We may not be the prettiest bunch, but we're going to battle, and that's kind of been the personality of this team. I don't think it bothers us, Reed added. We understand it, so it is what it is. In fact, the Chiefs seem to relish the underdog role. Mahomes certainly does. He is 9-3 and three as an underdog, giving him the best winning percentage of any quarterback with a minimum of 10 starts, playoffs included, over the past 15 seasons. The Ravens' Lamar Jackson, whom Mahomes vanquished in the AFC title game a little more than a week ago, is next on the list at 9-5 as the underdog. In fact, the bigger the underdog, the more successful the Chiefs have been in recent years. In five games that they have been at least a three-and-a-half-point underdog since Mahomes took over as the starting quarterback, they won four times outright. In the lone loss in a game against the Patriots in October 2018, They were four-point underdogs and lost by a field goal, covering the spread. One player who doesn't subscribe to the notion that the Chiefs are underdogs is 49ers tight end George Kittle. He was on the losing sideline in the Super Bowl four years ago when the Chiefs rallied with three fourth-quarter touchdowns to win their first Lombardi trophy in 50 years. The rest of the time, Kittle has watched from afar as Kansas City went to six straight AFC title games, won four of them, and hoisted another Lombardi trophy when they beat the Eagles last year. 
They should have all the attention, Kittle said. I think they're very used to it. I don't think it's a distraction for them. But while we might be under the radar, I guess to people on the outside, I think the Chiefs are very aware that we're not. No, one thing the Chiefs rarely do is overlook an opponent. And it seems downright absurd that they would start at the Super Bowl, particularly against the 49ers, who have been favored in each of the 20 games they have played this season. Next is a men's college basketball top 25 recap. It's entitled Hall, Clemson, Takedown Number 3, UNC. P.J. Hall had 25 points along with the go-ahead put back with 3 minutes 14 seconds left as Clemson survived a blown 16-point lead to stun number 3 North Carolina 80-76 to on Tuesday night, earning a marquee win for a team battling to improve its NCAA tournament chances. Joseph Girard III added 21 points for the Tigers, including a huge three-pointer at the 2.09 mark to follow Hall's basket. That was part of a 7-0 spurt that provided just enough as the Tigers never trailed, yet had to fight to the final seconds to secure the win against the Tar Heels, who were coming off an emotional rivalry win against No. 9 Duke three days earlier. Clemson lost its first 49 games in Chapel Hill before breaking through in 2020 for an overtime win. Now the Tigers have won two of three trips here since, fueled by Hall's strong showing after struggling in last month's home loss. Hall hit two free throws with 4.6 seconds left, sealing a win that had Ian Shefflin joining several Tigers players waving goodbye to the UNC crowd while skipping their way to the tunnel after the horn. Armando Baycott had 24 points and 13 rebounds to lead UNC, while R.J. Davis added 22, but the Tar Heels shot just 36.9% and made 9 of 27 three-pointers. Number one, UConn defeated Butler 71-62. Donovan Klingen had 18 points and 14 rebounds to lead Connecticut over visiting Butler for its 11th straight win. Cam Spencer added 20 points for the Huskies. DJ Davis scored 21 points, and Jamal Telford added 17 for the Bulldogs, who entered on a four-game winning streak. Number five, Houston defeats Oklahoma State 79-63. Jamal Sheed scored 23 points, Emmanuel Sharp added 16, and Houston beat visiting Oklahoma State. The Cougars played most of the second half without coach Kelvin Sampson, who got two technical fouls and was ejected with 15 minutes and 8 seconds remaining. Javon Small scored 18 points for the Cowboys. Number 23, Baylor defeated number or excuse me, number 13 Baylor defeated number 23 Texas Tech. 79 to 73. Ray J. Dennis scored 21 points. Seven foot freshman Yves Missy had 17 points and some impressive dunks, and Baylor handed visiting Texas Tech its third consecutive loss. Jaden Nunn added 14 points for the Bears, including seven in the 13 0 run that put them ahead to stay. Joe Toussaint had 18 points for the Red Raiders. Number 14, Iowa State defeated Texas 70-65. Milan Momsilovich scored 13 points, and Iowa State held off a furious rally by host Texas over the final 10 minutes. The Cyclones led by 19 points in the second half, only to see the Longhorns claw their way back behind Dylan Dessou, 
who scored 28 points, including 16 in a row in the second half. Number 15, South Carolina, defeated Ole Miss 68-65. Colin Murray Boyles scored 16 points in South Carolina, reached 20 wins for the first time in seven years with a home victory over Mississippi. The Gamecocks won their first game as a ranked team and sixth in a row overall after not appearing in the top 25 since 2017. Number 17, Kentucky defeated Vanderbilt 109-77. Antonio Reeves scored 24 points, leading six Kentucky players in double figures, and the Wildcats routed struggling Vanderbilt in Nashville. Kentucky snapped a two-game skid against the Commodores. Evan Taylor led Vanderbilt with 20 points. Number 18, Dayton defeated St. Joseph's 94-79. Nate Santos and Kobe Elvis each scored 21 points, and Javon Bennett added 18 to lead Dayton over St. Joseph's in Philadelphia. Oklahoma, 82, number 21, BYU, 66. JVN McCollum scored 20 points, including 15 in the second half, and Oklahoma beat visiting BYU. Nevada, 77. Number 22, Utah State, 63. Nick Davidson scored a career-high 25 points and had 10 rebounds as Nevada ended a 13-game home winning streak by Utah State. And number 25, New Mexico defeated Wyoming, 91-73. Donovan Dent had 19 points and 7 assists to lead New Mexico over host Wyoming. Now we'll wrap things up with a look at the NBA Irving scores 36 points and return to Brooklyn leads Mavs past Nets. Kyrie Irving scored 36 points in a dazzling return to Brooklyn exactly one year after he was traded to Dallas, leading the Mavericks to a 119-107 victory over the Nets on Tuesday night. Luka Doncic had 35 points, 18 rebounds, and 9 assists as the Mavericks-Guard tandem took turns hitting some deep three-pointers in the second half when the Nets were trying to make a run. Doncic quickly quickly shed the mask he began the game with to protect a nasal contusion and just missed his 10th triple-double of the season. Irving was booed when he touched the ball in the early going, though he turned those to cheers after finishing one of his fancy drives for a reverse layup or hitting one of his six three-pointers, and especially when he rose high to slam down a lob pass in the third quarter. Irving, who is second to Vince Carter in Nets franchise history with his 14 40-point games, nearly got one against Brooklyn after returning from a six-game absence with a sprained right thumb for Monday's victory at Philadelphia. Michael Bridges scored 28 points, and Royce O'Neal had 18 for the shorthanded Nets. Ben Simmons had 9 points, 9 rebounds, and 7 assists after sitting out Monday's game. In other NBA action, the Knicks defeated the Grizzlies 123-113. to the Pacers defeated the Rockets 132 to 129. The Heat downed the Magic 121 to 95. The Chicago Bulls defeated the Minnesota Timberwolves 129 to 123 in overtime. The Utah Jazz defeated the Oklahoma City Thunder 124 to 117 and the Phoenix Suns took down the Milwaukee Bucks. 114 to 106. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Sioux City Journal. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with Iris.
the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.